Hi, I'm Victor Milligan, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And I'm thrilled to have Carrie Johnson, Senior Vice President of Research, to join me as a special guest host on today's episode. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you, Victor. We have two guests in the studios today, Forrester Stephanie Bloris and Sal Schiano, to discuss really how businesses are taking on climate change. Welcome, Stephanie and, and Sal. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So in the political sphere, there's a lot of anxiety about climate change, whether it's the Paris Accord or whatever is happening on the global environment. But it appears in the business sphere, there's some sensible planning going on. Could you guys give us some background as to what's happening in the business sphere as it relates to climate change? Yeah, Sal and I, we were just talking about this. I mean, it's, it is fascinating in the political sphere. There's this ideological divide about whether climate change is actually happening or to what extent and what the cause of it is. But if you look in the business world, it's like it's clear cut. There's no disagreement. Everybody's on the same page. And it's because when you look at the businesses that actually face an existential threat from climate change, they're not messing around. They're they're acting. Um, So the industries that we've seen so far, definitely technology industries. I mean, you think about the impact that climate is going to have on cooling and energy of data centers and a variety of other technology pursuits. Technology companies are way far ahead. Um, everyone from Google, Amazon, Microsoft, you name it, they they all have huge initiatives around this. Um, any company that relies on agriculture or products that might be produced from the rainforest already taking huge steps to figure out not only how they can help reduce climate impact, you know, keep that maybe to the two degrees of the, the Paris Accord, or basically how they themselves adapt if, you know, the we as a humanity can't actually keep to that. Uh, military. <laughs> military does not make decisions based on political ideology. They make it based on sound operational decisions. I think the U.S. military has about half of their bases that might be affected by rising sea levels in the coming year. Which makes sense for the yeah. Navy and Marines and all. It seems like what you're outlining is definitionally politicians care what climate change is, when it's happening, how it's happening, how severe it's happening, how long it's going to take. But businesses don't, and they're reacting. Why Why do you think that is? And and even on a finer point, you've talked about technology firms. Is, is this because they have traditional data disaster recovery efforts? Why are they jumping on it so fast, do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. I would say you're right. Businesses potentially don't care what the ultimate cause was. They, they have to adapt Rising sea levels, ongoing droughts, more severe weather, um, threats to to sources of of certain products that they rely on. Um, But I would also say that they do believe that it is human cause. And that's why so many of them have significant sustainability efforts, because there's a range of scenarios for the future. It could be, you know, two degrees. It could be a four degree increase. And if you do believe that it's, it's human cause, there's still an opportunity to at least limit the damage. There's some damage that can't be undone, even if we stop producing carbon tomorrow. There's some damage that can't be undone, but there's a lot that we could still do to make sure that it's on the lower end of some of those worst case scenarios. So that's still important. So I think businesses do care, but you're right there, you know, regardless, there's going to be a significant temperature increase and they have to adapt. And yeah, I think for certain industries, actually insurance, they're good at risk assessments, technology firms that rely um, almost exclusively on technology, they have to be really good at IT disaster recovery. So they do have an ability to sort of objectively identify risk, assess, look at the impacts, and then develop adaptation plans for that. So staying with insurance for a second, their risk models, their historic risk models may not have assumed the pace of change. How are they handling future risk versus prior risk models? Correct. And actually, this is 
uh, a point for all for all companies who do because a lot of companies are decent at business continuity and you would do it an annual like risk assessment. But the way you would approach an annual risk assessment is you would look at historical uh, disasters. So in the U.S., for example, you might look at a history of um, disasters by state as well as county, and that would give you a likelihood of certain types of threats of occurring and come up with a decent probability. What we've seen in the last couple of years is you can't just rely on historical analysis. It's all out the window because every year we're breaking records. Hurricane Sandy actually was can serve or may, it might have served as a watershed moment because what they said was it was not itself an extraordinary storm. It was a big storm but was not an over-the-top extraordinary storm, but its ramifications were extraordinary. Did that sort of reset, at least at the coastal level, what could happen to a city and how fast that could happen? Was that serve as a watershed moment at all? It was Hurricane Sandy. I think also the year before that in 2011, the Japanese tsunami, I think, was also a watershed moment. Um, You know, so speaking of risk assessment, the entire nuclear fallout of the Japanese tsunami of 2011 could have been avoided if their backup generators were another three three to six feet off the ground. The whole thing could have been avoided. But the seawalls around the plant itself, the fact that the generators were actually on the ground, that was based on a risk assessment that had been done years before. And it was on an assumption that earthquakes were only going to reach a ag- magnitude of 8.7. And the, the oncoming tsunami was only going to be of a certain height. They had never gone back to reassess those initial assumptions about the risk, even though there had been prior earthquakes that had, had hit nine point something on the Richter scale. They'd never gone back to refresh their risk assessments. And that's the kind of long-term um, adaptation that I think companies really have to embrace. Again, three three to six feet, those backup generators could have avoided an entire nuclear fallout and everything that happened to Japan in the subsequent years and months after that. So going back to, to your point, which is, so they've got to the point in time where the tsunami in Japan and Hurricane Sandy aren't aberrations that they go back and say, well, that's not going to happen again or happen like that. I'll go back to my historical. They're saying those are canaries in a coal mine. That's going to be the standard to which I plan against. That's that's the way we should think of the forward-looking models. Correct. Absolutely. I, I thought you were actually implying that you really shouldn't use historical models, period. Even looking back at that could be dangerous. That's true because, I mean, to, to a certain extent um, – we could be looking at a completely new era in terms of like frequency and severity of, of storms. I, I think the bottom line is not to rely on historical assumptions and every year to constantly challenge whatever assumptions you've built into your, both your climate adaptation plans as well as your acute business continuity plans. Did each industry come to the conclusion separately and respond separately or is there some unifying force, some UN council, something that's brought businesses aware of it so that there's some common scenario, some common thought process, and so therefore some common response, independent of what the industry might be? So I think it came out of the G20. The Financial Stability Board asked for some sort of mechanism to understand uh, how much risk climate change posed to their investments. The Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures uh, was formed and just released uh, final recommendations in June 2017 which outline the risks um, involved with climate change and the opportunities that it creates. So this is a real thing, meaning, as I understand it, they're going to think of long-term investments in some part based upon how well people are responding or how, how well they're even thinking of responding. They're going to think of the health of a company based upon the same thing. In the same way, Carrie, you brought it up earlier, which is the precedent is business continuity. 
and the idea that business continuity at some point in time was sort of like an option then became a staple of financial expectations, which is are you financially prepared? Now this is just a sort of business continuity on steroids kind of thing. Yeah, it's a good it's a good way to look at it. Um, they're making decisions about long term investments. Insurance companies are even deciding who they'll insure. Uh, banks are deciding who they're going to make loans to, what projects they'll even fund, all based on on climate adaptation plans. And this model, I think, is going to be the one that most companies are actually going to use. And I like it. I think Sal and I were talking about my background's in business continuity, so I always, you know, I'm attracted to the. Uh, natural disasters and the physical risks, but it actually in a, outlines. In a very healthy way. In a healthy not way. Not in some I don't, sort of, I don't look know. forward to them. I don't pray for them. <laughs> um, but it, it actually outlines a number of uh, market and reputational and legal risks as well that I think a lot of companies need to start thinking about. Right. Yeah, in that earlier conversation, we talked about some that, you know, once spoken appear obvious. So things like agriculture, things like pharma that depends on biodiversity, we actually talked about others where the the business world depends on travel for productivity. And yet at certain areas, like in the Southwest, at a certain heat, planes don't take off. I mean, there are obvious, and then there are very subtle parts of this, but subtle but profound. Yeah, I mean, the travel one's a good, a good example. Um, yeah, I mean, we've seen airports shut down because of uh, extended periods of extreme heat. Um, another subtle one as well is you, you think about industries that have physical assets and physical resources um, and how much that's worth on their balance sheet and how much they had actually planned to uh, depreciate that asset over a certain life cycle. Our assets today weren't designed to withstand extreme heat over long periods of time. So, you know, any type of critical infrastructure, any type of like physical resource that you thought had a certain useful life is actually going to be remarkably less. So it's also going to have those kinds of like financial impacts. Um, extreme heat has productivity impacts on people. You think about delays in construction and delays in just upgrading critical infrastructure, um, health-related risks and the, the cost that that's going to introduce and for hospital. We think healthcare is expensive today. Wait till, <laughs> wait till 20 years from now, it's going to be a lot worse. You know, it's interesting. I spent some time with utility providers and, you know, they should be quite proud of their, their operational response to disasters. But what's interesting about it is if we have a big snowstorm up here in Boston, we'll start seeing trucks from Arkansas. The problem is just the severity and size of these storms may limit the idea that I'm going to give you a truck because I'm going to need that truck. And so you're looking at, at a response that's getting much more complicated, much more urgent, because just you just can't rely on the idea that everyone's not affected by this thing. And that might even lead to fundamental changes in business strategy. So you mentioned uh, utilities. Today we operate on massive national grids. Um, you know, you think about the blackout that happened, I think it was 2014, that actually took out almost the entire part of the Northeast United States and a good chunk of Canada because we were all relying on the same um, grid. You know, in the future, we might actually be looking more at microgrids. We might be looking at businesses and homes actually generating a lot more of their own electricity from renewable sources, creating microgrids where they're actually um, in local exchanges for energy with other businesses and other companies. So, again, it, it almost creates like a um, every every person becomes a lot more resilient than they were in the past um, and less reliant on a single entity for food, energy, healthcare. So it could fundamentally change a lot of our our business and operating models longer term. So it's kind of interesting because we, we, we had some discussions about supergrids. That was a big part of, or large national grids was a big part of the plan. Now you're moving to microgrids. 
In fact, some of the local energy sources that are sitting in houses actually may spawn more the microgrids you're describing and even off-the-grid kind of contingencies. Yeah, absolutely. And microgrids are more resilient. Um, again, if, if one microgrid goes down, you're not taking you know, um, an entire state or part of a country down. You're just going to have that local, local impact to it. So, and they're going to be based on renewable energy. So again, we're we're helping to contribute to reducing the uh, the extreme temperatures. It seems though that this would cause quite an increase in the survivalist movement, which has always been about some exogenous threat, right? Which I assume in some cases was a militia of some sort. And in this case, you're talking about actually being self-sustaining because you need to due to climate threat. Right. And, and I guess another difference as well is it's, it's not isolating. It's actually meant to, you know, connect your neighbors, connect to other cities and towns. So it's um, decentralization of the grid into smaller microgrids in order to have much more community support and in, in order to localize everything and limit the impacts on a much broader scale. But also just with on the renewable point, um, the future is with renewable energy, right? So the TCFD, that's one of the biggest risks that they see is... What's TCFD? Um, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Um, transition risk. Transition risk means transition to a lower carbon economy. That's one of their kind of key focus areas, is how are you as a business going to incorporate that? And, and how is that going to affect you? Are there going to be... Is there going to be a carbon tax um, that... So it costs more to do business. It costs more to ship. I guess there, has there been discussions of that because we we started this discussion distinguishing the political sphere from the business sphere, and to date the the political is sort of this this distinct conversation mostly about what's causing it. Does this commission begin to influence in real terms business uh, political policy? I mean, do you see that cutting over where the business takes because the businesses have taken the leads in the same way states have taken the lead here? Do they eventually influence the way that? national policies are set and global policies are set for this? I think that will vary by nation. Uh, you know, in the U.S., I'm, I don't know if I'm optimistic, but I think what makes me optimistic in the U.S. is that business leaders have been so forthcoming and so aggressive. And so they are the ones like really showing the, the leadership that I think to some extent the, uh, the turmoil that you see at the federal level and the inability to cooperate and come up with some sensible policies will be actually replaced by by business leadership and the actions that they're that they're taking. In some ways, political policy creates investment requirements. You know, so they, they put a mandate out there and businesses ultimately, whether they want to or not, they respond. But in this case, what the argument is, is that businesses are pragmatically investing now, whether they're forced to or not, because there's pragmatic reasons to do it ahead of the curve or in case of insurance with the curve because they're already being affected by it. I mean, so that might in other words, the investments are already rolling, which is what, sort of what was the intent of political policy in the first place. Absolutely. It's, uh, I feel like it's taking the place of the, the absence of the, the political policy that should be there. Um, so th that's heartening. I've been heartened by the activity that I've seen from individual cities, from states, and from, from business leaders from the global, the global 2000. There was a movement in financial disclosures and in annual reports to talk about how green companies were for a while. This was like 15 years ago, but no one could put a quantitative value on it. It was sort of the right thing to do, and there was a lot of consumer sentiment about it, that they wanted to buy green and they wanted to do business with green companies. And we have some data to that effect, but without a quantitative impact, that whole movement has 
I feel fizzled out a little bit because it's just about sort of brand and trust and value. This seems so much more tangible from an investment standpoint and asset standpoint. Right. Because it's, you know, it's capital investments, whether you can get insurance, it's about whether or not you can raise money. It's about your long-term financial viability. So yeah, when you start putting hard numbers on it, it changes. I I guess two points that could be interesting. One, Sal and I were talking about this, is climate adaptation is bigger than the sustainability programs that you see at Global Global 2000 forums. Those are important. I do think it's still um, a part of their brand and their ability to attract um, certain types of very valuable consumers who actually really do care about that. But this is actually coming from um, the business side. Like this should be actually led by your chief risk officer and business continuity teams and probably COO. Climate, climate adaptation plans can't be developed just by the corporate sustainability team. Corporate sustainability is important, but this is actually needs to come from, from business and operations and your CRO. They're the ones who lead this. To me, what strikes me is that the businesses pragmatically say that this is going to affect my bottom line which is loss is such a powerful motivator. So the idea of green was like, I will encourage consumers to feel differently about me and ultimately I'll feel some gains later on. It feels very intangible. Loss is very tangible. So you can see why they're moving. But it's also interesting because one of the pieces that's playing out in a consumer-led environment is that consumers respond to those that are more green, which is why Starbucks just announced the straw straw thing. So it would be interesting to find out whether it goes from the CRO, as you described it, Stephanie, and ultimately goes into the CMO by saying, I'm more prepared than others. I take this seriously. This is actually a flank of my social commitment to the earth and to my consumers. It would be interesting if it cuts over over time because it is an extension of what you said, Carrie. I think it already is. Um, I think that, you know, as far as marketing goes, um, you know, if you can innovate and in, in make a product more uh, environmentally friendly and, and, and low emission, um, and you can market that. It's kind of a win-win. Um, you cost savings, and also you get that green consumer. You can see why food companies will do this. You can see why automobiles would do this, because you're going to capture a certain segment of the population. It's less clear why high-tech would do it. It's less clear why pharma would do it. It's less clear why f- firms that might have an indirect relationship to the consumer in this context would do this, but you can see why it would be appealing to present it as a brand of the company. Well, consumer, but then there's also clients. So if you are a B2B company, what we've seen in our interviews is uh, partners are actually demanding proof of climate adaptation plans, and they're demanding um, evidence of corporate social responsibility around climate change. So again- So this is the same context as like GDPR, where I'm going to look in my ecosystem to make sure everyone's sort of flat against the policy. Are they asking because they- it's a value to the client, or are they asking because they don't want data centers to go down? It's it's both, actually. So in some cases, you know, it's it's the latter. Um, one of our examples was a, a big UK telecom, you know, and their partners wanted to make sure that this company was prepared for the long term to deal with the type of flooding that they were expecting throughout the throughout the UK. And it's also because it, it is an important value to them. So, yeah, so you think about like who you can do business with, where you can do business. Um, it's not just B two C companies; it's B two B companies already starting to feel the starting to feel the uh, the Im- impact. Getting back to impacts of this, <laughs> and you can see this in supply chains, which is obviously there's the the food supply chain is more obvious, but even the twos and fro's of making an airplane, how often those parts have to move, and how each transportation hub, if it's vulnerable actually causes the just-in-time thought process to go down. I mean, then you'll have real delays, real costs. 
to, to make that are just different than, than normal days. Yeah, I mean, there's very few companies that don't rely on a complex ecosystem of partners, and you're only going to be as available as your, your weakest partner. I mean, we've seen this for years in business continuity. You know, whenever you're going uh, into business with someone, you're always auditing their business continuity plans. Typically, what you'll see is if a, if a large enterprise is relying on a much smaller company, they'll actually force them to be certified to certain ISO standards for business continuity. Uh, so that that practice was already in place. So now it's, like to your point, it's it's upping it more. It's what are your long-term climate adaptation plans, knowing that in the next, maybe even sooner, but in the next couple of decades, for sure, they want to make sure that they're doing business with companies that can actually deal with these extreme temperatures, the extreme droughts, the floods, um, some of the other new, I hate to call it like nuance, but other like downstream risks that a lot of people don't think about is, you know, as this unfolds, there's going to be a huge human impact. So you think about the volatile geopolitical situation we have today. Now imagine that we're actually going to have climate refugees. So whatever we, we're experiencing today in terms of geopolitical instability, it's also going to get worse as well. So yeah, B2B companies are really, really concerned about this. So as we sit here today, we have a global commission that has formed. We have ad hoc financial standards and checks that are forming or in place. And it's becoming routine operations in many, if not most, industries right now, typically led by the CRO. So as you look over the next two to five years, what, do you, what does it mean to the way industries work and the way markets evolve? What, what does this mean to the world at large that the, the businesses are taking a lead position here? Yeah, I think to start off, I think sustainability investing will actually spur demand for all types of new business models. So the key is, you know, prepare today. Everyone's demanding it. Your your customers, your clients, governments, your investors, your insurance companies. So prepare today. Um, and like you said, there's a whole whole set of operational responsibilities that that entails. But look at the upside. There's upside here longer term. Um new business models, there's the ability to actually capitalize on some of the transitions that Sal was taking, talking about that your competitors aren't. There's huge transitions in uh, technology, in infrastructure, in, as we were talking about, microgrids, the ability to actually generate your own energy. Those are opportunities for companies to actually lead and create space to their next closest competitors. So start preparing for the upside as well. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Sal. And welcome, Carrie. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.